to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. And, and notice what Peter's going to do. He's not just going to deny Jesus. He's not just going to disown Jesus by accident. Oops, you know, sorry, that was a slip. He's going to do it three times. Which means it's not just a slip up. It means he has time to think about this and he's standing with what he's saying when he denies Jesus. I don't know this man. And we see that actually happening. The scariest thing to me in this whole world is my own weakness. Because I know how weak I am. Sometimes I forget, but I know how weak I am. And I don't have that much confidence in myself. I have confidence in Jesus. But I don't always have that much confidence in myself. Not on the long run. Because I know myself. I know my weakness. And I have to believe that it's not my hold on him. But his hold on me that makes me okay. I cannot look to myself to be okay. I have to look to him. I have to look to him. Now, I just, you know, some of you might be sitting here and, and saying, you know, oh, very sweet. You know, that's all nice, you know. But, but I'm, I'm visiting here and I'm, I'm not even sure I believe this Bible thing and this Jesus thing. You know, I, I, I'm not even sure I, I want to become a Christian yet. You know, some of you might be sitting there and that's okay. That's fine. Make up your mind. You, you take your time. Look at the evidence. Make up your mind. But consider this. You know, I, I really think Christianity in the Bible is a thinking person's book and a thinking person's religion. Although it's more of a relationship than a religion. But think about this. You know, some people say, no, you know, this whole thing about Jesus dying and rising again, this whole thing about the miracles, this whole thing about, you know, recording the Gospels that that they say are eyewitness testimony, it was made up later, you know. Jesus died, he never rose again, and the apostles, you know, to sort of, they already had a following, you know, to sort of keep this following, they sort of made up the stories about Jesus' miracles, and they made up the stories about his resurrection. Now, it's easy to make theories like that, but you've got to test those theories. You've got to think about it. You know, is that possible? Is that viable? Look at what... Remember who wrote the Gospels? It's the apostles themselves. It's their eyewitness testimony that's recorded in the Gospels. Now, think about this. What's recorded here makes them look really bad. They are these losers, according to what they recorded in the Gospels, who after Jesus had been walking them for them for years and been doing miracles in front of them for years and being laying down his life and then dying on the cross for them, are going to run away and deny him. Seriously? If they had made that up, would they have included such embarrassing, incriminating evidence against themselves? I mean, when you think about it, you realize, surely not. Surely if they'd made up something to try and promote a new religion that they were developing, they would have made themselves look a bit better. 
they would have made themselves as the leaders of this new religion look a bit better. They would have tried to inspire a bit more trust, you know, and impress a bit more. And yet, the Gospels are full of such accounts of where they, in their own words, and according to the Old Testament, are pretty much a bunch of losers who deny Jesus in the end, who disown Jesus. Think about that and realize that this really does ring true, doesn't it? This really does, I mean, there's, there's no better explanation for this than that it really happened. And if you're still trying to make up your mind about this Christianity, think about that and, and notice that this is really compelling evidence. The, 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 the theories that it was made up, it's not convincing. Not in light of this. So, <clears throat> Jesus um, solves both the problems of his absence and our weakness um, with the promise that he makes. I will be back. And he says two things. Firstly, he says, I, I will return. I'm, I'm going to return. And Jesus is, at Jesus' return, he's going to make everything right again. At Jesus' return, he's going to make everything right again. Um, who of you have either read the book or watched the movie of Lord of the Rings? Okay. It's one of those epics, um, epic movies. The, 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 the book's better than the movies, like, like it usually is. Um, the guy who wrote the book, J.R.R. Tolkien, was actually a Christian, one of the guys who helped, who, who um, led to the conversion of C.S. Lewis. And when you, when you watch the movies, you can't really see that. Um, but when you read the book, you can actually see the Christian influence, the, the influence of his, of his Christian faith. And especially in the last couple of chapters of the book, um, you know, when, when the big battle is over, because there's this big, the, the bad guy called Sauron who represents the devil, um, and then there's big battle against Sauron, and if, eventually he's defeated. And in the last couple of chapters, there's sort of this unwinding of the story when every, all the loose ends are tied up and everything is sorted out. And you can hear the biblical influence, the, 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 the Christian influence in his writing, because a lot of it sounds like how it's eventually going to be in the, in the Bible. But, but there's this, this story about these two hobbits, and they take this ring of power, you know, the deceitfulness of power and, and sin. And this, this thing has this power, it gets this power over whoever carries it. You can use it, and it gives you great power, but it corrupts you. So it's a, it's a beautiful metaphor, actually, for sin. Uh, and these two hobbits take it to Mount Doom, to Sauron's lair in Mount Doom, and they have to throw it into the volcano and destroy it. And eventually they do this. But uh, along the way they have this, this um, you know, wizard um, who's kind of like a messianic figure called Gandalf, but he dies, and then they leave the company, and, and, and they think he's dead. And eventually they do throw the, the ring into the volcano, and it's destroyed. But they, you know, the volcano erupts, and they think they're going to die, so they fall down like dead, you know, on the side of the mountain while the lava's flowing down, uh, and they, they lose consciousness. And then these big eagles come in the story and pick them up and carry them away to safety. And a few days later, the one hobbit called Samwise Gamgee, he wakes up in this beautiful, you know, room of healing, you know. Um, now, remember, he, as far as he knew, Gandalf was dead. He's this, this friend who led them, this, this amazing guy, he was dead, and as far as he knew, he was dead or about to die. <clears throat> and now he wakes up, <clears throat> and he finds not only is he still alive, but there's Gandalf sitting next to him. He's like, what? Are you alive? You're back. <laughs> and 
And then he says something that's, a, that's amazing, and that's such a beautiful picture of Christian eschatology or the, the study of last things. He says, is everything sad going to come untrue? What is happening with the world? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And there you can see Tolkien's Christian influence coming. Because he doesn't say, is everything sad going to be made up for? Is everything sad going to be taken away? Because everything sad in the, in the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective, it's not going to be taken away. It's still going to be there. Jesus is still going to have the wounds in his hands and his feet and his side. Okay? The scars are still going to be there. So, so everything sad is not going to be taken away. But, but also he doesn't say, is everything sad going to be fixed? Because it's not just going to be fixed. He says, is everything sad going to be made untrue? In other words, when Jesus comes back, he's going to fix things in such a way that they will be somehow better for having been lost and broken. Close your eyes for a moment. Just close your eyes for a moment. I want you to do a mental exercise. I want you to think, um, if you will, think of some some. Something that you, uh, your greatest suffering or your greatest disappointment or your greatest heartache. Anything that really hurt, anything that was really difficult, really disappointing. Just, just think of that for a moment. Can you imagine at some stage looking back at that experience, that event with great joy and delight? Anyone? Can you, can you think about looking back at that event with, with just like, wow, with thankfulness even, that it actually happened to you? Can you? Most of you are sort of shaking your heads and saying, no, <laughs> I don't think I, I can do that. Well, you know, you will do that if you're a Christian. If you decide to follow Jesus one day, you will look back at the greatest heartache, the greatest disappointment, the greatest suffering, even the greatest abuse you ever suffered with such deep thankfulness and joy and even say to God, God, thank you that that happened to me because my joy is so much greater because of that than it would have been without it. You see, when Jesus comes back, heaven, and I can't think of the English word, Afrikaans word is terugwerkend. It's going to be terugwerkend. Yeah, it's, it's going to work backwards, yeah. And, and it's going to, heaven is not only going to fix what is wrong, but it's going to work backwards into our past and fix everything. And, and not, not that, just fix everything, but, but make everything sad, untrue, and turn it into a joy. Some, I don't know how it's going to work, but it, I don't know it's going to be like that. It's going to be like that. It's going to wipe away every tear. It's going to be amazing, people. All of us are going towards some future. And you can decide which future you want to go to. Do you want to go towards a future where you just believe that you're going to disappear into dust and nothingness? If that is so, what meaning is there in life? If you're going to go to 
nirvana, you know, a state of nothingness. If you're just going to hunt moles in a wooden submarine, you know, if you're just going to become, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you're just going to die and bec- become dust again, I mean, what, what hope is there? What meaning is there to life? What meaning is there, is there to suffering? But if, just like with Jesus' sufferings, it actually has meaning and leads to greater joy. Then, it, then your life actually means, even your sufferings mean something. Even your sufferings mean something. So Jesus won't just fix everything sad or take it away. He'll make it untrue. Everything will be restored in such a way that it will be somehow better for having been broken and lost. In other words, when Jesus says, I'm coming back and Here's the thing, even if the worst happens, even if things go really badly in your life, and the worst happens, and your life turns out really terrible, Jesus is going to come back. And he's not only going to make your life bearable or somehow nice, he's going to make it exceptional. He's going to make it amazing, extraordinary. I mean, the greatest pleasure and the greatest joy we've ever experienced on earth is just a a little foretaste, just a tiny, minute foretaste of the joy and the pleasure we're going to experience in His presence. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand, Psalm 16 says, are pleasures forevermore. And if the muddied, dirty, polluted streams so far downstream taste so sweet, How sweet will the water at the source, which is God himself, how sweet will those waters taste? Amazing, more amazing than we can ever imagine or realize. So Jesus is going to come back and and he's going to make make all things right. And that's that's why you can't threaten a Christian with death. Because you're threatening him with heaven. You're threatening him with heaven. You, you can't threaten a Christian with death because you're threatening them with the most amazing joy and fulfillment that is imaginable. That's why the Christians in the early church, because they believed this so strongly, that's why they could go to their death so boldly, with singing. And if we believe it, we'll be the same. You know, the, the early Christians were, you know, in the mid to late 60s, they were, by Nero, they were thrown into the circus to wild animals. And Nero would, would, would take them and, 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 and sew, you know, skins, animal skins to their backs. Um, and he'd throw them into the circus to be torn to pieces by ravenous wild animals. And they'd go to their death singing. So much so that Nero would close his ears and say, must these Christians always sing? It was so joyful. I mean, some of the, the Romans watching it for pleasure and entertainment, you know, hardened people. I mean, how hardened must you be to watch people being torn to pieces for entertainment? Oh, wait, we also do that <laughs> in our movies. Okay, but, but I mean, how hardened, <laughs> how hardened must you be? These hardened Romans, some of them jumped out of their seats and jumped into the circus and said, I, I want to die with you. If, if I can only die like that, I want to die with you. I, I want this Jesus that you have that allows you to die like that. Because I, I've never seen anything like this in my life. If you have something that is worth dying for like that, then surely you have something really living for, to live for. And they would give up their lives just to become Christians and to die with the Christians in the, in the circus. Um, 
And Jesus is going to come and he's going to do this uh, through judgment. But he's also, he's also going to, he's not only going to return, but he's going to rescue us. He says in, in, in verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 3, he says, And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm, I, I will come back to take you to be with me, that where you am, that, sorry, that, that you may be where, where I am. I'm going to take you. I'm not going to take you. It's not so much that I'm going to take you to a place. I'm going to take you to a person. I'm going to take you to myself. I'm going to bring you to be with me. I'm going to bring you to be with me. And the, and the picture there um, I've heard is, is of the, the Jewish wedding tradition. And, and um, how it worked in those days, there were arranged marriages. You know, the older I become, and especially now that I have a daughter, you know, I'm becoming more and more in favor of arranged marriages. But <laughs> be that as it may. Um, <laughs> there were arranged marriages. And, um, you know, when it was, you know, when it had been arranged and um, the bride and the groom got betrothed, that betrothal was already a sort of a marriage. It, was, it wasn't just an engagement like we had that you could break off. If you, if you wanted to break it off like Mary and Joseph in the beginning of, of Matthew and so on, they actually had to get divorced, even though they had not yet gotten officially married and consummated the, the marriage. Um, it was already seen as a covenant. But then the, the, the bridegroom would go away, and him and his father, because they lived in extended families. I mean, they didn't live in just the nuclear family like we do. They lived in big extended families, and, and, and they'd either build a new house or they extend the father's house to make room for, for this new family that was going to move in. And, 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 when, and the bride didn't know when, when the wedding exactly would take place. But they'd be waiting. I mean, the, you can imagine the dress hanging there. I mean, ladies, that must be torment, you know. <laughs> you know, it's sort of, you know, going to be around somewhere that time, but you don't know exactly when it's going to be. The dress is hanging there, and, um, you know, you're like, when is it going to be, when is it going to be? And then all of a sudden, you know, the word goes out. The bridegroom has arrived. And that's what the... The, the parable of the, the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins is all about. You know, because they, they had to be ready at any time. So, so then the, the bridegroom would come and, and, and they'd have the wedding feast and then he'd take her to be with him, to be where he is, in his father's house, in the place that he prepared in his father's house. And that's the picture. In other words, Jesus is painting a picture for us that he wants us to be part of the greatest love story of all time. Where the hero is the ultimate hero who laid down his life at great expense to himself. And not just laying down his life, but laying down, to some extent, his relationship with the Father. He was, he was as it were, shunned, cast out, cursed even, so that we can be accepted, received, and blessed. At great cost to himself, he paid this highest of all prices so that we could be with him. The ultimate hero who gave it all up for us. And, and he wants us to be part of his story. And he wants to make that covenant with us. He wants to make a marriage-like covenant with us. Notice what he says. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. He doesn't say in my father's hotel, there are many rooms. You see, visitors stay in the hotel. Family stays in the house. When he comes to rescue us, he comes to rescue us as his family. His family, to be part of his family. To be part of his people. Okay, so the third thing, because of his, uh, 
we, we can trust, we, we don't have to be afraid, and we can trust because of his presence and power. Now, it's interesting, when you read in, in uh, John 14 verse 2, it says, um, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, when it says many rooms, and I put it up there on the screen, yeah, it uses the, the Greek word mon, monai, poli monai, um, Many rooms. Mon, monai, there's a, there's a Greek verb, uh, meno, which means to remain. So monai is just a, a kind of a, a, a noun form of it, that a place to remain, a place to stay, a place to live. Um, and, and, and that word only appears twice in the whole New Testament. Only twice. Because some of you might say, okay, well, that's all great. You know, and I now have to wait until Jesus comes back before everything's okay in my life. No, no. Jesus has a, you know... You might say, well, that's going to take years. No, Jesus has a solution in the meantime. In the other place, the only other place in the New Testament that word appears is in John 14, verse 23. And it says, Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. Literally, he will obey my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And when it says our home, it's exactly that same word, just the singular Exactly the same word. And that's the only other place in the whole New Testament where those word, both those words appear. In other words, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, one day I'm going to take you, I'm going to make a dwelling place, an eternal dwelling place for you, so that you can be with me forever. But in the meantime, I'm going to come to you. I and my Father are going to come to you and make our dwelling place with you. With you. How does he do that? How does, how does Jesus, how is he going to do that? And the answer is through the Holy Spirit. Um, John 14, verse 18, sorry, verse 16 to 18. John 14, verse 16 to 18. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father and he'll give you another counselor, um, another helper, some translations say, to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. And then he says in verse 18, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. How, how will I come to you? How will I come and make my dwelling place with you? Through the Spirit. Another counselor. And, and, and the word there when he says another counselor, the Greek is alos parakletos. Alos meaning another and parakletos meaning the one who walks alongside to help or to, to comfort or to counsel. And, and he says, and the, the word alos, you get two, two Greek v- words for, for another. The one is alos, which means another of the same kind. And then you get another one, which means another of a different kind. So he uses this word alos, another of the same kind. He says, I am your parakletos. I'm the one walking alongside you to help you now. And that's why you're so troubled when I say I'm going to go away. Because you realize you need help. But I'm going to send another parakletos, another helper who is like me. Exactly like me. I'm going, I won't leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now think about this. Jesus was this amazing person. He was God who became human. That's what the beginning of the gospel says. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Right? Jesus became, so Jesus was God, almighty God, without any limit to his strength. He was Omniscient, which means he was all-knowing. There was nothing he didn't know. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? When you know everything, you can't learn anything. Because you know everything. 
Nothing can surprise you because you don't, he doesn't only know things that are now. He knows everything that was and everything that will be. That was Jesus. But he was also omnipresent. He was present everywhere, unlimited in his presence. And Jesus chose to take human limitations on himself. He chose to temporarily lay down the exercise of his divine attributes and become a little baby. Be born as a little baby in a manger in Bethlehem and to partake of the human experience and limit himself. So even with Jesus' disciples, he could only be with them some of the time because he'd chosen to take on this limitation of human presence. And, and once when they drove out, you know, rode out in a boat onto the Sea of Galilee, a storm broke out and Jesus wasn't there and they were floundering in the storm and crying out and Jesus came walking on the water. So, so even on his earthly life as a human, he couldn't be everywhere all the time, everywhere with his disciples. And, and we as parents understand that challenge because we'd like to be everywhere with our children. We'd like to always be there with our children. And we have to make peace with the fact that we can't. We are limited. And Jesus, in his human ministry, was limited. He chose to put on human limitations. And that's why it says in, in John 16 verse 7, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because unless I go away, I won't send the other counselor, the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is Jesus unlimited. That's why Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because the one I'm going to send in my place, the Holy Spirit, is Jesus unlimited. He's exactly like me. He's as kind. He's as good. He's as holy. He's just not limited to a human body like, I am, like I've chosen to be now. He's unlimited. He can be with you wherever you go. And therefore, I can be with you wherever you go. My presence and my power, which you've seen, will be with you wherever you go. Therefore, don't be troubled. Trust in me. Because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I'm going to send my presence. I'm going to send Jesus Unlimited to be with you. Okay, so in closing, I just want to ask a question. Jesus says, don't worry. Listen to this. He says, don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And, in, in the, you know, and he says, you plural, all of you. Think about this. He says that after just having told him, I'm going away. And Peter's saying, Lord, where are you going? And he says, where I'm going, you can't follow. And Peter says, why can't I follow? I'll, I'll lay down my life for you. I'll die for you. And then Jesus saying to him, no, you won't die for me. Actually, before the you know, rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. You'll disown me three times. Jesus is guaranteeing a place in heaven. Even for Peter, whom he knows will deny him. How on earth can Jesus do that? I mean, Peter doesn't deserve it. I mean, Peter's going to betray Jesus, basically. Deny him. He deserves to go to hell. How can Jesus do that? How can he give him a place in heaven? And how can he guarantee that Peter in his weakness will not deny him again? Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a way for you. How is he going to prepare a way? I mean, how is he going to prepare a place? Is, is, is it like heaven is in disrepair? You know, needs some refurbishment, you know, reupholstery, you know, fixing up, you know? Is, is that the problem? I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that way there is not yet completed. 
And through the cross, Jesus is going to make that way. And now this is saying where Peter says to Jesus, Jesus, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll even die for you. Jesus says, no. You will follow me everywhere, but not because you'll die for me, but because I'll die for you. I'll die for you. You, you know, there are, there are so many leaders in the world, even religious leaders, who demand that you lay down your life for them, who demand that you die for them. Jesus is the only one I know of who says, no, I'll die for you. I'll lay down my life for you. He's so different. He's the ultimate rabbi, the ultimate leader, the ultimate lord, the ultimate king. And the way he can guarantee that even someone as weak as Peter, and we know better than Peter, let's be honest. We know better than Peter, right? The way he can guarantee that, that people who are weak, like us, like Peter, will not deny him and not disown him and will actually have the strength to follow through and follow him to the end is because he says, I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. I will send you my Holy Spirit. And then my presence and my power will be with you forever and it will sustain you. And it will make you to be like me. It will make you to be like me. Now it's the Holy Spirit is the crux of the Christian life. Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible in your own strength. It's impossible. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. The very presence and power of Jesus to strengthen us. Just close your eyes for a moment and just focus on the Lord. Do you have a hope that transcends death? Do you have a hope that will last forever? Do you have a hope that somehow everything sad is going to come untrue? Do you want such a hope? Do you want such a Jesus who will not only one day be back to take you to be his own, but who will in the meantime be with you through his Holy Spirit? So you can experience his presence and his power all the time. Do you have that? Do you want that? Today, God is offering, through his word, he's offering that to you. He's offering that hope to you. He's offering that life to you. And Jesus is saying, I am the, the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Come to me and have that hope. Have that life. And we all lay down our lives for something. We all give our lives for something. But I know of nothing and no one more worthy to give my life to than this Jesus who gave his life for me. Everything else you give your life for will ultimately disappoint you. Jesus is the only one who will never disappoint you, who will never, ever let you down, who will never leave you or forsake you. And he laid down his life to prove that. And he rose again to prove that. And I just want to ask if you here this morning and and you've never actually done that. You've never actually 
committed your life to Jesus and said, Jesus, I want to I want to become your disciple. I want you to be my rabbi, my master, my Lord, my King. I want you to rule my life. I want you to be my hope. I want to know you as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. If you've never done that before, this morning is your opportunity, and we'd like to pray with you. And, and, and just remember, as you're thinking about it, remember that Jesus wanted you to be his own. Remember that marriage metaphor, that wedding, Jewish wedding metaphor? Jesus wanted you to be his beloved so intensely and so desperately that he laid down his life. And even said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you won't have to say it and so that you can be his. You know, the gospel, the crux of the gospel is that we are so guilty that Jesus had to die for us. And yet we are so loved that he was glad to die for us.